in the uh, the book The Hiding Place, which I'm currently reading, uh, in uh, 1941, 2 and 3, 4, uh, Jews would show up at the Ten Boom House, uh, that's their, their last name, the family's last name in, in Holland, and uh, they, they became a part of the underground and were housing Jews in their own house, hiding them, and uh, also being kind of a hub by which uh, Jews would come to them and they'd find a place to place them uh, where they could hide out from the Nazis uh, for as long as possible. Um, and in one occasion, a young Jewish woman with a newborn showed up at the door. The problem there was, as it would have normally been uh, easy for them to, at that time, find uh, residence for, for this woman, but it was the child, uh, the crying child was an issue. If the child was heard, which, you know, it's, it's a newborn, so you can't tell it to stop crying, uh, if the child were found out by the Gestapo, the mother and child would be uh, arrested and, of course, uh, anyone if they caught any others in the house. So there was a solution that Corey had thought of, uh, that she knew of a pastor who had a home outside of town, kind of in a wooded area, and his house was off the, the road by quite a ways. And being far enough from the road, this child would not have been heard. So she contacted this pastor and approached him with the position of taking the proposition of taking the child uh, and the mother and child. This pastor, now he's a pastor of a church, and fear rose up in him, and he refused. He claimed, you know, which naturally he would have thought of immediately, what would have happened to him and his family if they were caught hiding Jews at this time while the Nazis occupied Holland. Of course, he'd be arrested and his family would be arrested and who knows what would have happened. So he filled with fear and he refused. When Corey's father, who was a devout Christian man, read the Bible all the time, he's in this, if you read the book, this man is just a wonderful uh, person, was a wonderful person, wonderful man of God. This uh, smartly, Corey's father went and got, got the child and gave the child to the pastor and had him hold him. And the pastor looked down at the child and uh, the child, like, you know, grabbed his, with a little tiny hand, grabbed his finger. And you could see, as Corey relates it, the pastor kind of softened up a bit. But then... He resolved again. He was like, no, 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 I can't do this. And he handed the child back and said, do you, it was his response, was like, do you expect me to die for this Jewish child? And the father's response was that it would be my greatest honor to die for this Jewish child. You know, and I'm sure he was thinking of Christ dying for us and... As he said to him, it would be my honor to. And meanwhile, the ten booms uh, have, there's like ten Jews hiding out in their house currently while this is going on. And they're heavily involved in the underground. They're, they're risking their lives every day. And yet this man would not risk his life for this child and her mother. Soon, uh, so they found a place for them that they knew had been raided by the Gestapo not long ago. They knew it was, it was the only place they could put them, the only place that would take them. And they knew it was dangerous because the Gestapo had already invaded it. And soon after, they invaded, or, or raided, I should say, this place again. And the woman and child were taken. And no one knows what happened to them since, at least from what they say in the book, that the family had no idea what had happened to them. A pastor had an opportunity, and out of fear, he didn't take it. Now, I, of course, I asked myself, if I were in that situation, would I have done it? And, I, you know, you could say it, but how could you honestly answer that until you were in it? We live in an age where God is sowing. He's sowing seed. That's how the Lord puts it. The parable of the sower is right there where... Jesus is speaking of a mystery age that would come, that had started with him and would continue. We're in that age. It's a mystery age, an age that the Old Testament did not know of. 
In this age, God is sowing, and God is allowing the enemy to sow also. As he says in the parable after the sower, the, wheat and the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the tares are growing together until the harvest, and the harvest is the judgment. Until that time, until the, and the judgment is the return of Christ, until that time we're each given an opportunity to walk in a manner that pleases God, a, a manner worthy of his calling, and that glorifies the name of Christ. Each of us have that opportunity. I saw also uh, Jim Caviezel, many of you know him as the, the actor who played Christ in The Passion of the Christ, uh, recently in an interview said, was speaking about Christianity currently and said that Christians today seem more afraid of the devil than they do of the Lord. And I find that to be quite accurate, and it can be for any of us. This pastor was afraid of the Nazis more than he was afraid of the Lord in that story. And we have to remember that we get one shot at this. There's no second life. All of us who have eternal life, yes, we have a life in heaven, but a life that we have to live out in this age where uh, there's conflict, where there's going to be conflicting, dangerous decisions where we have to take a risk of faith. That doesn't happen in heaven. It only happens here in this life. And we only have one shot at it. The pastor in that situation had his shot, and he chose in favor of safety. The Exodus did the same thing, uh, crossing the wilderness. They had their shot to enter the promised land with courage and faith, but they chose in favor of safety. What will each of us do? So we'll begin in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's open up in prayer and let's thank our Lord, for the opportunity and privilege to once again study His Word and to have His Word bless us with its truth. Uh, we seek the Lord in humility and in uh, reverence, having our ears open to Him, waiting to hear and listen His instruction to us. And with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for the fact that we can thoroughly trust you. We know, Father, that our lives, each of us, have their challenges. Each of us have the problems that we face, the difficulties, the shortcomings that we have, the weaknesses that we bear. And, Father, you have given no one a life that is more than they can bear. And therefore, we know, Father, that whatever you ask us to do, you have provided sufficient power, sufficient wisdom to make that decision, that hard decision, but to make it with faith and to trust in you, to put our trust in you who sent his Son, who died on a cross for our sins and rose again. If you can do that, and you can do anything as a creator of the universe. But you also reveal there your love for us, the fact that you are with us, on our side, for us. And as we know, Father, from your word, the great blessing of the fact that you are in us and that we have you, and you have us, and therefore, Father, we have nothing to fear. So as we face a world of evil, and also the evil within our own flesh that tempts us. We ask, Father, that your word would speak to us today to give us the courage to live like the king and know that he's coming. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So today uh, we're going to look at the state of evil and the state of sin in the world is in fact a design by God. And I'm not saying at all that God caused it. Don't get me wrong there. I would never say that. God did not cause sin, but he designed it. This is all predetermined. Christ will prophesy it. God had prophesied it. And as uh, that this age progresses, and has, as it has progressed for almost 2,000 years now, it is abundantly clear 
that this would be an age in which there would be great conflict. Uh, conflict, And there always has been conflict, but after Christ came and was rejected, uh, that conflict it increased in a way in which uh, Satan and the kingdom of darkness got busy in a uh, deceptive way, a more deceptive way, uh, a way in which he secretly sows sin and evil in this world so that people are deceived by it and drawn into it. Uh, It's so deceptive that Christians themselves can be drawn into it. And we must be very, very careful. Uh, We also must know that it is designed this way. So while we're thinking of ways to fix the world, uh, pause there for a second and realize that you're not designed by God to fix anything. He's going to fix it when he returns. We're not going to fix anything. Uh, Christians, all of us together, could not change the way the world is. This age is meant to be this way. And that doesn't mean that we're not concerned. We're concerned citizens or concerned in our neighborhoods, and we do the right thing to try and make our world uh, one that is safe and law-abiding, and provides the maximum amount of freedom for people and the people around us. But there's no way we're going to fix things. Uh, Mankind, you're either, mankind is either a wheat or a tear. Mankind is either a believer or an unbeliever. And as a believer, mankind is either a deceived believer or a wise and spiritual believer. And there can be a great difference there too, because believers themselves can create a great amount of evil uh, in the sin that they commit. So a believer is to live free and separate from it. And uh, we're going to be, it's always going to be around us, and we must understand that it is uh, our choices and our ability by faith to stay separate from it while we're surrounded by it. you know, the solution to some in the beginning of the church and in continuing was to become ascetics and just, you know, be monks or try and get away from the world. And God never told us to do that. God told us that to be in the midst of it, to be lights to the world. And if we're off on our own trying to isolate ourselves from the world, Christ said they're to glorify your father by seeing your good works. How are they going to do that if they can't see you and you can't see them? How are you going to minister to people that you're not even in the midst of. And so the solution is not to isolate ourselves, but the solution is to definitely isolate our souls from the sin and the evil that is in this world. And we must do that on a day-by-day basis. So uh, first off, this age will continue in conflict, in sin, in evil, in persecution, and in hatred, And it will do so until the Lord returns. And more to that, as we'll see. It's going to to be constantly going on until the Lord returns. Of course, we see in history there are periods of time where it seems to kind of be abated a bit. And it's not the, you know, a particular society doesn't seem to be as evil. But there's always evil. And with time, every nation falls. Every people fall uh, and those who do not follow God, I mean. So, Second Thessalonians 1.1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this uh, salutation, which is very easy to read over quickly and skip, uh, really does show us something that we need to pause and look at, and that's the fact that Uh, When the Lord came to earth, he gave a life. The creation of the church is by the Father and the Son here. It says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the church is in the Father. The church is in the Lord. And therefore, the church is created by the Lord. The church is the Lord's creation. And therefore, the church is to be ministered, uh, run, operated in a manner that glorifies him, not people. Uh, So, uh, you know, we are to magnify him. We are to magnify the gospel. We're to magnify the word. 
were to magnify what is God's plan for mankind and therefore were to love one another. As Jesus told us, if you love one another as I love you, then you, the world will know you're my disciples. I mean, that defines the church, the fact that we love like he loves. So, Christ came to the earth, an earth, of course, filled with sin and death, and gave divine life and a kingdom to us, or to whoever would accept it, uh, with himself as king. Uh, and then, and so when that is given, when he gives that, which he starts right, he said he starts it right at the beginning when he starts his ministry. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he tells them. He tells them over and over again when he sends out his disciples to speak to the various villages and towns. He says, "Tell them that the kingdom of God is at hand." And not only he, but his disciples would perform miracles. Multiple miracles, healings, casting out of demons to reveal that the power of the kingdom was here, that all of that evil and demonic activity, even you know, the, the, the sickness that came upon mankind because of the fall, there was a power now upon the earth that overcame was more powerful than all of that. And God reveals this through Jesus Christ, our King. Christ tells us, therefore, or then, and as in his ministry, that he's rejected, and he knows this. Right? I mean, he knew he would be because it's prophesied. But uh, when he is ultimately rejected by the Jews, which this comes at a particular time, by the way, it's when they when they truly when you know the. His use of miracles and his teaching together come to a head. I mean, they, they come to a place where it's unmistakable either this is the Son of God or he's something else. Either this is the promised Messiah, the Son of David, or he's something else. And the leadership of Israel decide he's something else. And the only thing that they could really come up with was that the fact that he was a minister of the devil. That he was some messenger of the devil, some angel of the devil, and did his power, did his work by the power of the devil. And as soon as they said that, Christ said, you committed a sin that can't be forgiven. Meaning, not as unto eternal life, but that it was over. Like once this was stated, Israel had fully rejected him. They rejected their king. And then he says that there's going to now be an age. An age from that point forward, which would start right then and would not end until he returned. And as we see here in Thessalonians, what would happen when he returned would be judgment. It would be a judgment upon mankind. As we know further on in the Revelation, that we're, it's not going to be the final judgment, but it is a judgment upon the earth that comes before Jesus institutes his millennial reign. And during that age, the sinfulness of man, the evil of man, would, um, well, I mean, it had always been here, but it would magnify itself. It would increase. It would be more deceptive and uh, hinder many. In other words, it would persecute and fight against the truth. And the Bible takes a, a great or spends a great deal of time uh, in the sinfulness of mankind. There's quite a bit of revelation about the sinfulness of mankind, the depravity of mankind. A great deal of the Bible is dedicated to it. The evil of the world. The uh, Scripture takes great pains to reveal this in multiple ways and from multiple angles. In our passage, the suffering of those who live righteously in this depraved world, uh, that is the depravity that is uh, revealed by Paul here or isolated by Paul that he brings to the, to the forefront. And there's many ways in which evil and sin are accomplished in this world. But what Paul is centering on is those who have persecuted the truth and persecuted uh, the church. By living righteously or sanctified, 
And if anybody does that, they are doing that in a world that uh, that hates Christ. They are doing that in a world that is against the truth. And we'll see that here in a second. As we know, the, the flesh fallen mankind wants nothing to do with it. And so if living in a world that is filled with those who are going to oppose the truth, when you walk in righteousness, those they're going to oppose the righteousness. As Christ said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Uh, <clears throat> but so for the Thessalonians, this what they do here in, in terms of living righteously, they do quickly. They don't wait around. They they hear Paul's message. They hear the gospel in a matter of months. And I've said this multiple times. They become fantastically faithful, which shows us that we don't have to wait around very long to actually live in righteousness and follow the path of holiness, which is another way of saying that we're going to follow the path of this life that Christ has given us. The king came into a fallen world to give life to man who had fallen to give life to man who had rejected God's authority, to give life to those who could not find life by, by any means. And he came to give us that. And having that life is a life of righteousness. It's a life of sanctification. It's a life of walking in the manner of Christ. It's a life of standing our ground on the truth and communicating the gospel. And we do this day in and day out. We're not timid about it, but we're also kind and gentle. Right? Definitely not timid. We're bold representatives of Christ, but we're kind and gentle. The power to do this comes from God. Now, as we see here at the front of Thessalonians, that the church is in the Father and in the Son. And so my power, the power of the church, the ability of the church is in the Father and in the Son. Somehow, in a mysterious way within us, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit make it work. If we choose it. And so your spiritual life owes its existence and draws its life from the Father and the Son. And how wonderful to know that when I live life, it's a life that has been designed by Almighty God. It's not just so any life. You know, one of eight billion people on this earth who are just living their lives out. It's not some biological life that's like everybody else's. This is the life that God has given. He's given it to everybody who would accept it. But to know this, and to wonderfully know this, how exciting it is to know that I can live a life that is now the result of the work of the Trinity, and that they sustain it, and that they give it life. And the challenge then comes that in the midst of a world that rejects it and hates it, will I live it? You see, it's an honor for us just to live the spiritual life. If only, if only enough Christians could see that, the church would be far stronger. They wouldn't be afraid of the devil. They'd be, they wouldn't be afraid of being persecuted. They wouldn't be afraid of anything that the world could throw at them. That they would do what God had willed them to do. We wouldn't be sinless, of course, but we'd be living with honor. To have a life, to live a life that's created by God for me, that was earned by the death of my Lord, how endearing. To be able to live it by the power of the Holy Spirit every day, even though I'm a sinner. If I made huge, terrible choices yesterday, that I can live it today. How exciting, with all my sins forgiven. And most certainly, my choices, my priorities, my love must be in submission to God's will. If I reject the will of God, then the life that they created for me remains dormant. It's there, I'm just not living it. And I'm pursuing that which is dead. The old life. And for too many Christians, uh, the old life has infected them. They remain infected with it. And, it. and the only reason that happens is pure ignorance. They just don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand. They haven't put faith in all the Scripture. I know people have put faith in parts of the Scripture that they like, but they won't put their faith in other parts. 
And therefore, they're not convicted by those other parts. And they tell themselves that they're fine when they're not. They're infected with the world that Christ came to destroy. Imagine that. You're a subject of the king, and you're infected by the world that the king came to destroy. Now, if others choose the path of death while I choose Christ's way of life, how should I view them? Should I see them with contempt? Should I look at them with anger? Should I judge them? No. I should look at them with pity. In a moment, in a decision, in faith in the gospel, they can be on the side that is you know, possesses Christ's life. So their eyes are going, everybody's eyes are going to see the Lord one way or the other when he returns, right? Everybody. And when he does, it's going to either be a condemnation or unspeakable joy. So taking a page out of the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus is going to return like a farmer collecting his crop at harvest time. He's going to collect the lives that he has made. And that's for us and for all others. What a joy to know that when he returns that I'm one of the wheat. That I'm, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am one who's going to be collected by him in glory. I'm going to be excited. And that is going to be my step if I'm, you know, if I'm alive. But even when I, when I die, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm being collected. And um, it should be an exciting time for us. And I know it will be. So this mystery age, when Christ, after Christ was rejected, he revealed that it would be a time of sowing. He revealed this mystery age in seven parables in Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> the first parable that he mentions, he said, governs the rest. It's the parable of the sower. He said the parable of the sower is the one that you need to understand to interpret the rest of them. And that shows us that all of them, and meaning this whole age, is about sowing seed. It's about sowing the word of God. That's what the seed represents. So during the age of sowing, in the next second parable, Christ said that, well, the parable says that the enemy would also sow. And they would sow alongside the wheat. In the parable, the master, you know, they, they plant wheat. And then the next day, the servants come in and say, hey, somebody snuck in and planted tares. In other words, it's deceptive. The sowing is not obvious. The sowing of the enemy, it's not obvious. It's a deception. And Satan is very good at this. He's exceptionally good at deceiving the human race. But this is God's doing. Right? When God prophesies something to happen, he's not prophesying something that's outside of his control. Right? When a prophet, if, if you're like Isaiah and you're prophesying something to come in the future, you're not doing that. God is showing you what he's going to do and you communicate it. But when God speaks his prophecy, here you've got Jesus Christ telling us about a mystery age that is to come. He's God. He makes that happen. So it's a true mystery. That God makes this happen. He doesn't create evil and sin, but he makes it happen. As if God is not in control. Of course he is. And it's truly a mind bender. But we don't have to understand that. That's the beauty of the part of the beauty of it. The, I mean, the great beauty of it is that even though we don't understand why God would do things that would possess such sin and evil and heartache in it, that... It's designed by him with a very real purpose, and all his purposes are exceptionally good. And so he allows the devil to sow evil in this world in a very deceptive way, so deceptive that we can fall for it, even we who have the truth in our hearts. So what's important for us, again, that first parable is the parable of the sower, and what's important for us to be is good soil. And good soil bears fruit. He says some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. 
What's important for us is that we strive also to show others that they can do the exact same thing. There's nobody excluded from this. It doesn't matter uh, gender, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic status, race. None of that matters. Isn't it amazing how much Satan is making issue out of race in the Western culture right now, and that's because he wants to divide. And when you know, it, when you divide, you can conquer and rule people, and that's what he's doing. But God has revealed that it's not Jew or Gentile; it doesn't even matter. It's everybody in the human race that Christ Christ has died for all, and therefore anyone can be a, a wheat. Anybody can be a, a subject of the king and have this wonderful life through faith in Christ. But anyone who rejects the king, that's the Lord Jesus, the king who came into this world, anybody who rejects him rejects the kingdom. If you reject the king, you reject the kingdom and you reject the way of life of the kingdom. And that's why we must do all in our power to witness of the gospel day in and day out. See our opportunities, take hold of those opportunities, take advantage of those opportunities to witness to the gospel. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right? And that includes every member of the human race. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, there are also those who have believed. There's the unbeliever. They They need the gospel. They need to hear the gospel and believe it. There are also those who have believed the gospel but are ignorant and confused concerning the life that they have been given. This life is the life that Christ came to give the world. And there's some believers, I mean, all of us at the start are confused about it, but some believers, I don't know how many, and I don't care to make that estimate, but there are some believers who have not spent the time to truly understand what that life is through the Scripture. Uh, and they, they're confused concerning it. And, of course, it takes time to learn it, but without having ears to hear and eyes to see, which means humility, that they're not going to see it. Some believers, unknowing of the life they have been given, and this would not be the Thessalonians, but who would it be of those churches that we know of in the New Testament? It wouldn't be the Thessalonians, but it would be the Corinthians. It would also be the Galatians. Some believers, unknowing of the life that they have been given, remain infected by the flesh. And they fail to overcome the flesh. They live selfishly, carnal, fleshly. They live in strife. They live in envy. They live immorally. And here we see a comprehensive list. If you go to Galatians 5, go to Galatians 5.19. Now, this was important to understand is that this is the flesh of everybody including yours and mine. This is what the flesh, uh, unregenerate, without God, this is what it does. So God is showing us in passages like this, or like these, um, what the flesh is. It stands in great contrast to the life that Christ has given us. And yet we still possess the flesh, and the flesh can overpower us, it can master us if we allow it to. And a life sustained and empowered by the Holy Spirit is the only way that we can be holy, the way that we should be. The opposite to this is the fruit of the Spirit in this passage. So the fruit of the Spirit is the life that is given over to the Spirit of God, which is a life given over to God because the Spirit is God. It is us being also at war. right? You see in Galatians, uh, look at verses 16 and 17, it says the war is in you. That the flesh wars with the spirit and the spirit wars with the flesh. But we will not accomplish the things of the flesh or do the things of the flesh if we walk by means of the spirit. And that means to live by faith in the fact 
that I have this life and that this life is empowered by the Holy Spirit when I choose to live it. When I choose to walk by this life, God the Holy Spirit makes it happen some, in some supernatural, wonderful way. So when we look at this list, before I'm going to give you the list before we read it. I, I think as we read it, we can kind of get lost. But also I wanted you to see, you know, this, this slide is way too busy to be a slide of instruction. <laughs> but that's the reason I put it there like this. I wanted you to see the, the magnitude of it. That's the flesh that all of us have. This includes sexual sin, uncleanliness, lack of moral restraint, idolatry, occult rituals accompanied by drugs, hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, divisions, self-willed opinions, envy, drunkenness, drunken revelry, and other things like these. Which, you know, what other things could we lump in there with them that are like them? <clears throat> so, uh, look at Galatians 5.19. And I, I, I put these in order, the way that they are here. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. This is porneros, a Greek word that generally refers to sexuality. Uh, so, it's sexual sin. Impurity is uncleanliness. Sensuality. This word means a lack of restraint. So sensuality means it, it can mean sex or it can mean anything. It can mean anything that your flesh desires that you know you shouldn't do or is bad for you and you do it anyway. Uh, and so that's a lack of restraint. Next, idolatry. So we take a shift here at verse 20, which is probably why they put the verse here. Um, is idolatry is a bit of a shift. So the, the first part is about sexuality and, and lustfulness of the physical flesh. And then we have idolatry, which is the worship of anything that's not gone. Sorcery, which is linked to idolatry in terms of its, you know, what are the rituals of idolatry? And in the ancient world, they were often accompanied by drugs. So the Greek word here is pharmakia where we get pharmacy from. Uh, and it, it's not just drug use, which, of course, is wrong. Well, well, you know, without a prescription by your doctor, you always have to throw that in there. You know, where, where it's fine, and, and that's between you and God and your doctor, <laughs> not your pastor. But, um, you know, these are the rituals, the occult rituals that use drugs. And in our day and age, people use drugs and alcohol in their idolatry rituals. And, you know, just use your imagination there. It's, it's all over the place. Now, there's another pause there. The next one it shifts a little to enmities, which is hatred, strife, which is quarreling and contention, jealousy, which is jealousy, outbursts of anger, which is exactly what that word means, disputes, which are factions and strife, dissensions, which are divisions and factions. And I love this word. Factions really means a self-willed opinion. All right? Think about how many people are convinced they're right in their opinions. And why? Because it's their opinion. It's the ultimate of pride. Self-willed opinion and then envying. Right, so the longest part of this list is about our division, hatred, strife, enmity, one with another. The flesh fights. The flesh is envious. The flesh is angry. The flesh is jealous. The flesh quarrels. It hates other human beings. And then the last part is drunkenness. And carousing, which this word carousing kind of means howling at the moon. Really what it means. It means to be drunk and revel, like party, party hard. <laughs> the only thing I could think of was like getting out, tying, the, tying one on, painting the town orange or whatever they call it. And then he says things like these, so there's more. Paul, Paul says I could go on, but that's enough. 
And he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what he means here, he's writing to believers. He doesn't have a doubt in his mind that the Galatians are believers. But he's saying to them, look, the people who live like this are those who are entrapped by the flesh. They're the unbeliever. These are people who don't inherit the kingdom that Christ came to bring. And so, this is the world that you live in. If you take them in sections like we kind of did, you have the immorality and sexual deviance at the front. But is sex wrong? No. I mean, God has provision for it. In it opposed to the way of the world, the kingdom of God has sexuality shared in a dedicated godly marriage. It's not that God's not going to provide it. It's just that he has a way for it. And that is a part of the kingdom of God. And then you have uh, idolatry and sorcery, which is our worship of things that are not God and the accompanying rituals that are enhanced by drugs or alcohol. And there's a reason why you need the drugs and alcohol when you do these rituals, because there's no reality to them, and you need to get a false sense of emotion. There's no real, there's no real to it. There's no reality to it. So you need to um, falsely inflame your brain because the thing that you're doing is false. You're worshiping something that's not truly a god, your creator, and so you need to enhance that with chemicals. It's the only way that makes it worthwhile which it's not worthwhile. But this is opposed to the worship of Almighty God. To the worship of Almighty God, we lovingly lay down our lives to His service, to His will, to Him. And we enjoy the natural joy of being in the divine presence. There's no no drug or amount of alcohol that can make you feel like you do when you know you're in God's presence. And that you have a relationship with God that is real and personal, day by day. It's all the time that you feel joy, contentment. And um, there's nothing drugs, alcohol, sex can provide that. And then the next section, there's four sections, is our division in factions with other people. There's our envy of others, our tribalism. We see a lot of that in our day. Outbursts of anger and fighting, um, being fully devoted to opinions for no other reason than they're our own. And this is opposed to the love of God that is patient and kind and supports all things, hopes all things, believes all things, and endures all things. And then finally, we have our drunkenness and our revelry in drunkenness. And this is opposed to our life being stimulated by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, loving righteousness more than we love either alcohol, drugs, or sex, which would all fall into this category. And so we have sex, the worship of people and things, drugs, fighting, and hating, and drunkenness. And behold, that is the flesh. It's no wonder the world, it is a wonder that the world has lasted this long if it weren't for God making it so. Now, some people jump into all of these. And some wanting to be more respectable in society only jump into some of them. Some try not to jump into any of them, but fantasize about them. They do them in their minds. As Christ said, if you looked at that woman to lust for her, you've committed adultery. He's saying that, look, even if you restrained yourself because people are watching or you didn't want to be looked upon as a loser, so you, you restrained yourself from doing it, but you wanted to, you longed for it, you dreamt of it, you imagined it. He said, look, you're just as much. We get caught up in the word guilty, which is true, it's guilty, but what Jesus is saying there is like you are trapped in the world's kingdom. You're trapped in the flesh, of which I have come to set you free. See, the Thessalonians got this. And because they got it, the people around them abused them, ridiculed them, persecuted them, and they stayed strong. Now, what about believers? Can believers do these things? I don't, 
some people say no. They say, well, look, only those who inherit the kingdom of God don't do this. It's true. This is what unbelievers do. But can a believer get involved in this? And of course they can. The Corinthians did. The Galatians did. That's why he's writing it to them. He says to them, look, in, in you, the flesh is warring with the spirit. So he said, walk by means of the spirit and you'll overcome the flesh. But you have to make that decision. There's a lot of believers, I shouldn't say a lot. There's some believers who are still trapped in those. It doesn't matter if it's one of them, two, several, all. They're entrapped in it. They're infected by them. And Christ came. You see, when Christ came to give us eternal life, it's a life that he invaded. Christ really invaded the world with this life. And that what we see in Thessalonians is that he's... Now, from the, from the time he taught this, in Matthew 13, from the time he taught this to the time of his second coming is going to be an age where these people, who are like these people, <laughs> uh, 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 and I'll go forward... This may make no sense, but and and these people are going to be at war, right? So in other words, those who know Christ as King and they give their lives to Christ and they live like Thessalonians did, they're going to be at war with those who, like we see here in Matthew thirteen fourteen, which is where he he teaches this kingdom age. He says, in their case, the ones who don't understand, the ones who don't hear, the ones who don't see. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand, and you'll keep on seeing, but you won't perceive. And then he continues, as the prophecy says from Isaiah 6, their eyes are blind and their ears are deaf. And they see, notice he says, you keep on hearing. It's not that they haven't heard it. It's just that they don't understand. They don't want to understand. And this is how he described Israel, but it's also how he describes all, not just Israel who rejected him, but all the human race who reject him. And there are Christians who have dull ears. And they must not. And look, if Christians have dull ears, then all of us are in danger of it. I mean, how many things have I come to know in the last few years that I thought I knew in the past? And it was all because of pride that I said, oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. Because, you know, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know that. And in my pride, I was shutting out the Word of God from going, I was hearing it, I was reading it, my eyes were taking it in, but I wasn't listening because I already knew it all. How stupid. But thank God, God has a way of kicking us out of that nonsense. You don't know. It's okay not to know. Who of us knows it all? Nobody. So there's something we don't know. We're always learning. And we could be completely convinced that we know when we don't. And if that's the case, then the life that Christ has given us is being wasted. It's not being used. We're living some false life based on pride. And pride comes from the flesh, which has already been crucified. So you're truly living like a dead person. It's a flat-out waste of time. And that's what all these parables are about in Matthew 13. But we're uh, with the Thessalonians here. Uh, so go back to Thessalonians. No, you know what? Stay in Matthew. Go to Matthew 13. We already read that passage. As we know, the Thessalonians quickly understood the life that Christ gave them. Bravo to them. You know, they understood it fast. And, Christ, and uh, Paul commended them for it. And what was it? Well, they, had, they were humble. They, they had ears to hear. They heard it. They're pagans, too. They had no background in it. I said, they're not Jews. Most of them are Gentiles. Some of them were Jews. But for the most part, it seems that they were Gentiles. So they had really no background to this. They were idol worshipers. But they heard Paul, and they listened, and they kept listening. 
But is it Paul that's the key factor? You say, well, if I had Paul as a teacher and not Joe, you know, I'd really get it. But Paul's not the key factor. He's definitely a key teacher. But the same teacher taught the Corinthians and the Galatians, and they did not get it. Not like the Thessalonians did. So that's why it is vital for all believers to know Christ as king and to know the life that he's given us. A lot of Christians don't know what the life is that has been given to them. That pastor who wouldn't take that child, that mother and his child, he had an opportunity right there. And I, I can imagine how fearful it was. But he didn't understand the life that was given to him. He thought that his life was security. And that is not the problem. Does Christ promise us security? He does not. Eternal security, yes. But security on earth, no. Absolutely not. He promises us his life. He does not promise us an earthly life that, you know, the world wants. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. That's the life of the world. So, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, he said, we're grateful for you. So grateful for you. That your faith is increased and the love you have toward one another grows even greater, even though you're being persecuted. That's basically verses 3 and 4 in our chapter, which we'll get to tomorrow again. In this age, this mystery age, notice, notice how, what Christ calls it um, in Matthew 13.10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? This is right after in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, they accused Jesus. The people started to believe they, that Jesus had healed a leper who couldn't speak, which according to the Jew, to Jewish custom, and they had their um, exorcists or those who could cast out demons, and at least they said they could uh, in first century in Israel. And it was well known that if you cast out a demon out of a person who couldn't speak, only God could do that. And Jesus does it. And the people are like, could this really be the son of David? In other, when they say that, they mean Messiah. Could this really be the Messiah? And in chapter 12, the leadership of Israel said, no, he's not the Messiah. He works for the devil. That's why he can do what he does. He does it by the power of the devil. And Christ called it a sin against the Holy Spirit. And he said it was unforgivable. And it's then, in Matthew's Gospel, which is written to Israel, to the Jews, that he starts to speak in parables. Now, he, he spoke in parables before, but you know, in this passage in Matthew 13, we see him turn to parables. And here's what the disciples ask him right after that. After he starts with the parable of the sower. The disciples came to him and said in verse 10, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, it turns out the disciples don't know what the parable means either, but they ask him. You see, the the mystery of the kingdom to all of us when we hear it, like, say, the first time, we're like, uh, what now? It's not what we expect. It's not at all what we expect. And you're not going to find it in the Old Testament either because that's why it's called a mystery. They wouldn't have expected it either. You know, what would happen if Israel rejected their Messiah? You know, it's death to them all. Does God just burn the earth to the ground? You know, like what happened? And we know what happened. But then it was a mystery. And then, so, um, this mystery age, we're going to spend some time in, because now as we roll forward in Thessalonians, we are um, confronted with eschatology. We're confronted with what is God going to do in the last days. This will be a very exciting study for us. And we have to, first off, understand what this age is. Before we can, and, and just to make sure, I'm, I'm sure that we do for the most part, but we want to make sure that we do. We set us up for the next age by knowing what this age is. 
And, you know, why is it, as he says to the Thessalonians, the comfort to them is that Christ is coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to judge. So all those people who are persecuting you, Christ is going to get them in judgment. All those people, you know, everything that is a problem that is causing things to be hard and difficult, Christ is going to make it all right. He's the one who's going to judge. So when you're getting all upset and angry and you want to judge them and put them dead, he says, look, Christ is coming back. You follow him and do what he wills you to do and leave them in his hands. And that's a comfort. But until then, until he comes, we're to walk in a way, live in a way that glorifies his name. But that judgment is coming. So look at Matthew 1330. This is at the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And uh, the master, the, the landowner in the parable says, allow them both to grow together until the harvest. In other words, the wheat and the tares, they get to grow together. Unbeliever and believer in this age grow together. Truth and deception grow together. Goodness and godliness, sin and evil grow together. All those people who are lying, cheating, and getting ahead, and you're like, they're getting away with it. And all of those people that nobody knows who are doing good and righteousness and giving the gospel, they're all growing together until the Lord returns. He says, allow them both to grow together. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. So the tares are judged. And here it's a mighty judgment. When God judges, it's not anything other than final. And where are the wheat going? Into his barn. And you're going to be with him forever. So finally, this mystery age, we're going to spend... As we go through Thessalonians, we'll, we'll be touching on it more and more. Is And I'm using Ryrie on this. Uh, also got this from uh, Pentecost. If you know these authors, they're dispensationalists from Dallas Theological. Uh, so <clears throat> the mystery of age of Matthew 13 is the age between when Christ was ministering on earth and the time of the second advent or the second coming of Christ. As Ryrie states in the basis of premillennial faith. And so, um, you know, I, I just put this up so you know it's not it's not what my opinion is. There's many who have this, many in fact, that what is presented here in Matthew 13 is not it's. And the reason why I go into this is because some of us think of the mystery as just the church. It's not just the church. It's an age in which there's church, and there's unbelievers, and there's all kinds of evil, and there's all kinds of good, and it's all that happens between Christ's ministry, which would include his resurrection, ascension, and session, the church, and rolling into the tribulation until he comes back. And all of that age, here Jesus deals with in seven parables. And unraveling them is a, is a hoot. I mean, it's truly fun. Um, you know, there's gonna because they're parables. There's gonna be differences of opinion. I'm not gonna get into the differences of opinion when I do this, but we're just going to see the basic premise of it, which is all God wants us to see, is that Christ is coming back. But while we're here in this age, we're we're always there's always gonna be conflict. There's always gonna be temptation. There's always gonna be you know at times worse than others persecution and difficulty and trial and things that are hard and we're going to be challenged in our faith. We're going to be uh, pushed to the limit. We're going to be asked to do things that we won't want to do and our faith is going to be in a real conflict within us between our own safety and our own desires and God's will. This is going to continue through the age and through the rest of our lives. And uh, and so we must we must understand that so that we're prepared for it. Our lives are one that are lived in conflict, and that conflict isn't going away, not until Christ returns. 
So, application-wise, don't fret. Don't judge. There's no reason to get revengeful. There's no reason to get angry at those who are seemingly getting away with it. They're not. Don't fret, as David wrote, what we close with on Sunday. Right? Your Lord has it all under control, and He has designed it this way. And so, let's, uh, that's it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Your Word. Thank You for Your glorious gift of Your Son in this life that You've given us. Grant us, Father, the ability to see so that we will see and ears, have ears that will hear, so that we'll be humble students of Your Word and learn and grow in Your grace and knowledge. To know these things, Father, and to live this life in the midst of a lost and dying world, We ask this in Christ's name, amen.